Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing 15,000 Miles in a Catch by Captain Raymond Rallier de Batty, published in 1922. We're on chapter 9, and this is part 13 of the reading. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, and there for just $5 a month, you can help the production of these podcasts, of which there are 20 per month, and keep these books where they belong, in the hands of sailors who can learn the lessons therein. Now on with the story. Chapter 9 My brother told me that the vessel which had steamed to our island of desolation was the Jeanne d'Arc, commanded by Captain Ring, a Norwegian like all his crew. They had come to establish a great factory for melting the blubber of Wales. Henry had been sitting with his telescope on the roof of the German house when he had first seen the trail of smoke many miles away out at sea. He could hardly believe his eyes, but through his glass he saw the steamer quite clearly. He followed it with the same breathless interest which had held Agne and me in its grip, and with the same hopes and fears, rejoicing when he realised that the ship was making steadily up Royal Sound. As she came she sounded her whistle, and Henry saw that Bon Tomps, who had been working by the factory, had seen the smoke and the ship and heard the signal. For a moment, our boatswain stood as though turned to stone, with one hand shading his eyes. Then he threw down his pick and gave a strange yell, and to my brother's amazement, began running round the shed, round and round and round again, like a mad dog. There is no doubt, I think, that the sight of that steamer had turned poor Bon Tomps' brain for a little while. Like Agne, he had only one thought tobacco. He craved for it, like a shipwrecked sailor for fresh water. It was the one great need and passion of his whole being, and the idea that that steamer might be coming with tobacco, or might by some fearful stroke of evil fortune not come, after the vision had met his eyes, worked a madness in his mind. When at last the Jeanne d'Arc appeared and dropped anchor in Gazelle Basin, my brother and his crew rode out to her and hailed her. The Norwegians were the first to ask a question. Are there many whales about? We haven't seen any. Any amount, came the answering shout. Oh, and have you any tobacco on board? This was the greeting between the newcomers and the oldest inhabitants of the island. Then Henry went on board and grasped the hand of Captain Ring and the Norwegians. There were more than a hundred of them crowded round, eager to hear his story and to obtain from him a store of facts about Kerguelen. But the first good thing they gave in return was the packet of letters from France, it turned out that our parents had heard of the proposed voyage of the Jeanne d'Arc to Kerguelen and had taken this opportunity of sending their love and news to the exiles far away. I need not say how wonderful it was to us to have those precious documents, to read them over and over again, to devour greedily every little scrap of news about our family and friends contained in them. We were like Rip Van Winkles who had come back to life again after a long sleep or like prisoners who, after a term of servitude in the silence of a living tomb, come out to hear all that has happened to the world since they were put away. I think my readers will have no difficulty in imagining the condition in which Henry and I, after I had joined him again, sat in our cabin with those letters before us and talked over every line of them. To go back to the Joan of Arc and the Norwegians, it turned out that they had been two weeks in Kerguelen before they had discovered our small ship. They had gone first to Gazelle Basin, keeping a sharp lookout for us. There was a big gale on, and they saw the water blown high in vapory spray by the wind, 
so that they believed it must be the smoke from our fires. They sounded their whistle and shrill blasts as to signal us, but soon realised their mistake. Then they saw quite clearly the pathway we had formed by going daily backwards and forwards between Sandy Cove and our anchorage. Upon going ashore, they discovered the bottles, telling them of our future plans and probable whereabouts. From Gazelle Basin, some of the officers and crew went in a motor launch to look for a suitable place in which to build their factory, and afterwards, in the Joan of Arc, steamed to Sunday Harbour. Here they dropped anchor and, climbing to the top of a hill to survey the surrounding country, saw a ship in one of the bays. The readers of my tale, who were not so familiar with the geography of Kerguelen as I am, will guess perhaps that the Norwegians were looking down upon the J.B. Charcot. Truth to tell, they were not. They were looking at a French brig called the Carmen, commanded by Captain de Aste. By an extraordinary coincidence, two vessels had arrived at the island of Desolation, after we had lived there alone with no other human being within many hundreds of miles of us for ten long months. This news from the Norwegians that Frenchmen were on the island was the cause of great excitement to Henry and me and the rest of our little crew. It was good to think that in a little while, perhaps, we might grasp the hands of our compatriots and hear news from France and news from Paris. That was an immense treat in store for us. It seemed that Captain d'Aste had heard about the J.B. Charcot. He had read an account in the papers of our proposed expedition and that had given him the idea that perhaps he also might go sailing round the island of desolation. A rich and charming widow had fitted out his expedition and brought the brig in Marseille, and with a crew of twenty on board he had followed in our track. The Norwegians in their turn had heard of the Carmen, and now they went on board and told Captain Daste of the news they had found us in Gazelle Basin. Through these good fellows he sent greetings to us and hoped he should soon meet. Then the Joan of Arc had steamed round to Observatory Bay and had found the J.B. Charcot. They were absolutely astounded at the smallness of our boat, for they had been looking for a big sailing ship. They were very glad to meet Henry, but stayed only a little while before searching further for a good place in which to plant their factory. It was astonishing what a change the arrival of these two ships made to us. In reality, we were just as lonely. The Joan de Arc had gone away to another bay, the Carmen was on the other side of Kerguelen, and around us still were the great barren mountains with no human being upon them. Yet, we had a sense of companionship, of an almost bustling human society. The arrival of the Norwegians was a topic of incessant interest to us. The knowledge of their presence in Kerguelen was cheering to us in the extreme, and the thought of Captain de Aste and his French brig gave us something to look forward to with joy. But now the time had come for us to work hard. Seals were swarming in the bays, our casks had to be filled, more casks had to be made, and great days of hunting lay ahead of us. I became very busy again at the cask business, and this time I took an apprentice like a true master of craft. It was Agne, and a very handy fellow he was, so that between us we could do a lot of work. On the 17th of November, we left Observatory Bay with the J.B. Charcot for seal hunting. We dropped anchor between Charmna Rock and the shore upon which Agne and I had lain in our tent, kicking the snow off the canvas after we had sighted the Jeanne d'Arc. It was not a safe anchorage because the sea bottom was a very bad ground of rock and sand, and our anchors would drag if a southwesterly gale beat up. However, we put our trust in luck, a most fickle mistress when she rides upon the wind, and, lowering the boats, went on shore. 
great herds of seals were lying lazily upon the rock ledges, and we went among them with deadly intent. For hours we fought with those big beasts, and if a spectator had been watching from a high rock, his soul would have stood aghast at the horror of it. It was butcher's work, only redeemed by the monstrous size of those sea elephants, by their fierceness and brute strength, and by our own puny stature. We were but pygmies against those herds of grotesque and gargantuan creatures. It was like an attack of primeval men upon the mammoths and megatheria of the prehistoric world. For miles around, the rocks must have resounded with the noise of battle, with the angry bellows of the bull elephants and with our own hoarse shouts. Blood bespattered the rocks and we fought ankle-deep in puddles of gore and red streams trickled over the ledges and stained the sea. Butcher's work, filthy, horrible and brutal work. Yet we steeled our hearts and were not over-nice or sensitive and when the twilight glimmered in the pearl-grey sky and shadows roamed among the rocks, many great corpses lay stretched out upon the shore. With our knives, we hacked at those dead monsters. It was more horrible than the killing, stripping them of their skins and slashing off the warm white blubber. When night descended upon us, we had four full boatloads of that precious stuff and another great pile upon the rocks, and we rubbed our greasy hands and called it a good day's work. We got the boat safely alongside the ship and hoisted the blubber on board so that the deck was crowded with it. That night, as a contrast to our hideous work of the day, the sky was filled with a divine beauty and we had a remarkable aurora australis, the best of the ten which astonished our visions during our stay in Kogulian. Across the sky there glimmered bands of light of a radiant whiteness and violet and purple so that a glory was above our little ship an enchantment flashed upon the mountain ridges of the land. The next morning, we went on shore again to collect the remaining store of blubber, but a strong north wind was blowing, and as the barometer was falling, we were afraid that the gale would jump to the southwest. We should have been more careful, but we were excited with the treasure of our great seal hunt, and so busy that we did not notice the increasing wind. Only my brother remained on board, and I, with Agne, Bontemps, La Rose, and the boy, were hurling the pieces of blubber into the two boats without a thought of the danger that was lying in wait for us. Presently, I noticed that my brother had hoisted a signal to come quickly, and then, for the first time, I realised that the southwester was rolling up an ugly sea and that we should have a tough time in getting back to the ship. I shouted to the men to get away, and Agne and I, with a full boatload, pushed off and rowed for our very lives. Bontemps, La Rose and the cook followed in the other boat, which was also piled high with the white fat. Agne and I were making a good headway in spite of the dangerous sea when I heard shouts from my other comrades and, looking round, saw that they were in great trouble. Their boat was too heavily loaded, and when they had gotten halfway between the J.B. Charcot and the shore, I saw that they would certainly sink unless something were done without a moment's delay. It was impossible to get any of their blubber onto our own weight, so I shouted them to throw it overboard. La Rose and the cook began to do this in frantic haste, while Bontemps at the oars tried to keep the boat steady, but the blubber had been cut into such small pieces that it was difficult to relieve the weight in the boat quickly enough. I was half frantic with anxiety, for I feared that my poor comrades were doomed. They kept trying to come alongside, but were always beaten back and their boat was lurching in an ugly fashion. Henry threw life belts to them, made of canvas stuffed with kapok and mattresses stuffed with the same material. If their boat went down, they might still have a chance of life, for these floating mattresses can support three or four men. 
Agne and I had succeeded in getting alongside our ship and at last, much to their own surprise and ours, to say nothing of our joy, the other men pulled close and were hauled on board. It was a very narrow shave for all of us and we were very thankful at having escaped the price of our recklessness. Then we hoisted anchor and ran to Island Harbour, which, you will remember, is not far away in Royal Sound. Here we stayed five days in dirty weather, exploring three islands in the rowing boat and on foot and shooting a few rabbits. Then we returned to Observatory Bay to our oil factory and worked hard for two days at the filthy work of blubber boiling. But we were well pleased when, at the end of our toil, we had filled 20 barrels of 50 gallons each with the best seal oil. It was now early in December and we sailed with a number of empty casks and two kettles to meet Captain Daste on the Carmen in Waynock Bay. This was to be a purely pleasure trip for the sake of a greeting with our compatriot and his little crew of French seamen. Did I say a pleasure trip? Alas, it was a tragedy. We were running near Mouse Island in Royal Sound when a sudden snow squall blinded us and clothed us in its whiteness. We could see hardly a yard down the bows for the snow came down as though the gods were having a tremendous pillow fight. We were horribly afraid of being driven onto the rocks, for we were running swiftly with the wind hard astern, with our boom right out and with our mainsail stretched taut. Suddenly, when we were going on another tack, there was a loud report as though a gun had burst and a splintering of timbers and a wild flapping of sheets. Our boom had broken clean in two and the weight of those pieces falling upon the deck had dragged down the mainsail, which was now without control, so that the fierce wind worked its will with it, and split it into shreds which flapped wildly like seabirds with wounded wings. We were in a pitiful plight, drifting helplessly on that dangerous coast. The squall ceased as suddenly as it had burst upon us, and then we saw that we were almost ashore on Mouse Island. Another two minutes and we should have been smashed to splinters. We worked ferociously to escape this doom. Quickly, we rigged up a storm sail and mizzen, and under these sheets we ran for our old anchorage off Grave Island. Next day, as some compensation for our disaster, we were favoured with a gust of good luck. An east breeze blew, the rarest wind off Kogulian, and with this we got back to our headquarters in Observatory Bay. We had suffered a real calamity. What were we to do with our ragged mainsail torn to tatters and with our broken boom? It was impossible to mend the boom, but we had no spar big enough to replace it. The only thing to do was to abandon a boom altogether and to use free tackle instead. With regard to the sail, we had to rely upon careful tailoring. Fortunately, Henry, my brother, is a first-class sailmaker, having been mate for a long time on a big four-master. Bontomps also knew a good deal about sail darning, so that these two sat down to serious work. They had to cut about half the sail away, so cruel had been the damage and to let in fresh pieces from the canvas we had in store. It was eight days' labour, and that amount of equal lost time. I decided to use the time, as far as I was concerned, by any other excursion in unexplored territory around Long Island and elsewhere. This time I took La Rose, as Agne was required by my brother on the ship, being so intelligent and trustworthy. La Rose and I therefore took to the rowing boat, with sufficient stores for a week's trip, and worked our way between Long Island and the mainland. Here I was startled by an extraordinary sight. It was a row of long, white buildings. I rubbed my eyes and wondered whether I was dreaming or whether I had suddenly been bereft of my senses. Then I saw our old friend, the steamer, and immediately I guessed the meaning of these new, remarkable buildings. 
the Norwegians were putting up their factory. Indeed, by a kind of miracle, they had already built a number of white wooden sheds of a truly magnificent appearance on such a place as the Island of Desolation. Naturally, Larose and I desired to present our compliments to the builders, and, rowing as though a vision of paradise had suddenly opened before our eyes, we arrived at the Norwegian station in the very nick of time for dinner. Larose, of course, was dreamy-eyed with joy, and proceeded to reveal to an astonished crew the vastness of his appetite. For myself, I can truly say that those days with the officers and crew of the Jeanne d'Arc were a continual delight. It was good to meet those fine, cheery Scandinavians, to sit in the officers' cabin chatting over adventures, to see so many new faces, to feel once more that there was such a thing as human society, to hear the chatter of voices and the music of laughter, and to be amidst all the bustle of a big ship, which, after my long loneliness, seemed like a noisy city seething with busy life. It was good, oh, very good, to sit down to a new dinner table and to eat new food. Good heavens, I shall never forget the thrill with which I saw a plate of porridge put before me. Porridge! It tasted like the ambrosia of the gods, and there were eggs and Norwegian salt fish and jam and all sorts of amazing and delectable things. We had little evenings on board. I began to remember that I had a gentle blood in my veins, and that I had not always been a savage on a desert island, killing big beasts and cutting them up. Why, the cabin of the Jeanne d'Arc was like a drawing room in Paris. We had concerts, for there was a gramophone on board which played the latest operas to us. On the island of desolation, with the great black mountains stretching away in a solid sea of grim untrodden peaks, I first heard the melodious strains of The Merry Widow, and my friends told me how it was all the craze in Europe. They made a hero of me, of this wild, dirty ruffian called Raymond Rallier de Batty. They asked a thousand questions about our trip. Again and again they expressed their astonishment at the tiny ship in which we had ventured so far. And they were never tired of hearing all about Kogulian, and for hours we talked the jargon of the sea, of soundings and wind force and barometrical readings. They asked if I thought the place they had selected for their factory was a good spot. Yes, I said, it is admirable. There is a good beach and a stream of fresh water, but... And they looked anxious at this, but... I am afraid, I said, that you will find no whales in Royal Sound. They were dismayed at this news, and afterwards it turned out to be right, so that they had to go a long way from their headquarters to the whale hunting. On my side, I was intensely interested in all these arrangements and plans, and especially in the building of the factory. They had come with magnificent equipment, and brought the sheds in pieces ready to be fitted up, and carpenters and smiths and other craftsmen in addition to the ordinary crew. It was a different thing from the J.B. Charcot. They were good fellows, those Norwegians, and I remember them with gratitude. Captain Ring was the kindest of men. Mr. Elefson, the manager of the factory, could not do enough for me. They were prodigal in their generosity. I told them I wanted to explore the country on the other side of a narrow neck of land called Swain's Hallover, and that LaRose and I would have to drag the boat across. But the Norwegians would not allow us to attempt this alone. They came as our escort, and LaRose and I walked with a gay company. For Captain Ring and Mr. Ellefson and all the officers came to help us, and hoisting the boat on their shoulders, carried it for three quarters of a mile, while others carried our provisions and stores, which were all dumped down on the shore of Swain's Bay. They shook hands with us most heartily, and wished us good luck and a safe return, and then went back to their own ship, leaving us with very warm hearts at the thought of so much kindness. Well... 
There was LaRose and I on the edge of the sea, facing an unknown tract of country. We were out for adventure, and, packing our stores into the boat, pushed off and tried to row northward. But a strong gale broke upon us, and we were beaten back among the islands. At nine o'clock at night, when it was nearly dark and the wind had dropped, we rowed across to the opposite shore, and saw the magnificent and unforgettable sight of the setting sun lighting up the snow-capped summit of Mount Ross, six thousand feet high. It was overspread with an immense white cloud like a parasol, and flushed with rose pink in the sunset. At midnight we reached the head of an unnamed and uncharted bay, and here we put up our tent, and snuggling into our sleeping bags, took a well-earned rest. On the following day, LaRose and I set out on a long tramp in quest of some hot springs reported to exist in the neighbourhood. We searched all day, but did not see any, and I feel convinced that those hot springs were of a mythological character. We again slept in our tent for the night, and then early in the morning struck across land and reached Table Bay at night, after a very hard day. We had tramped steadily for many hours through country wilder even than any I had yet explored. Once we came to a mountain torrent surging below in a deep rocky gorge, too wide to jump so that we had to make a long detour southward. At last we found a big boulder caught between the sides of the gorge which we used as a bridge after losing two hours by this delay. Then we had to cross a range of uncharted ice hills, steep and sharp and slippery, across which we stumbled, suffering now painfully from foot weariness. We'd come in walking shoes in order not to be weighted down by heavy sea boots. Mine were nothing stronger than Paris Boulevard shoes, and they were not designed for the rocks of Kogulian. They were torn and cut to tatters, and I had to tie a piece of string round one foot to keep the sole on. I had gloomy forebodings of the return journey. It would be an awful thing to walk back barefoot. The Rose and I were thoroughly exhausted when we reached Table Bay after that grim struggle over the ice mountains, but after a rest we wandered about the shore for a little while and found a cave which excited our interest. It was a fair height up in the face of a steep basalt cliff, and I was first attracted to it by seeing some pieces of wood on the beach below and then by a number of fallen boulders which, either by accident or human design, made a series of steps up to the hole in the rock. We climbed up and found ourselves in a strange dwelling place. It had evidently been inhabited by shipwrecked men. In the centre of the cave was a large stone, blackened with fire, and around this were five smaller stones for seats, so that it did not require much imagination to guess at the number of men who had found refuge here. It was clear, too, that they had stayed some time, for they had taken the trouble to make the sloping floor more level by an arrangement of planks and stones. They had left many relics behind, there were their oilskins mended with rope yarn, some American cotton jackets, a pair of sea boots, and a number of spent cartridges of the old Winchester pattern. They had managed to cook their food, and we found some ingenious contrivances for this purpose, such as a grill made of barrel hoops, fastened crosswise on which no doubt they had roasted wild birds. But the most curious thing was a cooking pot made out of a sea elephant's skull, covered with skin as hard as wood, and with the fin bone as a handle. On one of the jackets I found some pages of an English novel, and the cave was scattered with eggshells. It was most strange to stand in this cave, thinking of the romantic life that had been spent here, and of that little band of five shipwrecked men. It seemed almost as if presently we should hear their voices and see them scrambling up the boulder steps to take their seats on those five stones by the round hearthstone. But undoubtedly 
They had been rescued years ago, and only the relics remained to tell the story of their adventure. I took one of the sea boots and cut the top down to make a shoe. I regret now that I did not take away the skull of the sea elephant, which had been used as a cooking pot, but it would have been a burden on the way back. We spent one night near our boat on this wild coast. The ground on the beach was very swampy after heavy rain and snowstorms, and I searched around for a more suitable spot on which to pitch our tent. But the rose was impatient for a meal, and when I was away he worked feverishly at getting the tent up. I was only away about five minutes, but when I returned, the tent was already up, though as a rule it took twice that time to fix, and when I came near, the rose, who must have been toiling with prodigious energy, was pretending to be very leisurely while he spread out the stores. I had not the heart to make him shift everything, though it was a vile place on a steep slope, and after our meal I passed a wretched night. The rose was not the most agreeable of companions. Having fared well and smoked his foul pipe through the sleeping bag until the tent reeked with tobacco, he tucked in and snored blissfully, and the sheer dead weight of his fat body rolled down the slope and lay close upon me all night. On the following day, I decided to get back, and though we had to go over those ice mountains again upon another weary climb, we travelled faster as we knew the way. Getting back to our boat again at six o'clock in the evening, we rowed across to the opposite shore and reached Swain's Hole over at ten o'clock at night. Here we pitched our tent, had another meal and some hot tea which was wonderfully comforting, lighted a hurricane lamp and then tucked in for sleep. Early next day we took all the luggage out of the boat and leaving it on the shore, carried our stores across the neck of land and hailed the Jeanne d'Arc. At luncheon, in the cabin with the Norwegian officers, I gave them a full account of our adventure. It was then Sunday, and at noon a terrific gale started to blow. Captain Ring, who was not yet acclimatised to the storms of Kogulian, was very much alarmed and feared that the Jeanne d'Arc would snap her cables and go ashore. Some boats, which had been floating astern, broke their ropes and were flung on the rocks, and then Captain Ring gave orders to get up steam. But in three hours the storm spent its fury and the danger passed. La Rose and I slept on the Jeanne d'Arc that night, and next day our good friends came with us to fetch our boat. To my great dismay, I found it overturned and smashed. I had made a fatal mistake in unloading the stores, which would have weighted it down. It was a great misfortune anyhow, for we had already broken two of our smaller boats during storms, and the others were too big and heavy for coasting trips. Seeing my distress, Captain Ring and Mr. Ellefson immediately offered their assistance, and helping to carry back my poor battered boat, they handed it over to one of their carpenters to be patched up as skilfully as he knew how. This was done to my profound satisfaction, and we returned to the J.B. Charcot, glad to find her safe and sound in spite of the gale. A few days later, I rode back to the Jeanne d'Arc with a little present for Mr. Ellefson as a small return for all the kindness I had received. When he visited my brother, his eyes caught sight of a little burthen, a collapsible boat which I had bought in Brixham Harbour, it only held one and had not been of much use to us, but Mr. Ellison had a fancy for it and offered to buy it. Of course, I was very glad to give it to him. Meanwhile, two smaller whale steamers had joined the Jeanne d'Arc and one of them, named the Eclair, was about to set out on a visit to Captain de Aste on the Carmen in Wynock Bay in order to obtain some petrol which he had to spare. The Norwegians invited me to join them and I was delighted at the idea of meeting at last the French officer and his crew, whose presence in Kogulian had excited in us so much interest. 
Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.